No, there is no escape from housework. Uh, we are three people in our household, and my husband is also working from home, and I'm also working from home, and my kid is also taking his education from home. So we are making three meals a day. We are wearing and taking out our clothes always, and there are packages coming to our door, and they have to be taken to balcony, cleaned, and then uh, disinfected, and then put into new packages again. So the house feeling became to me much more housework. And even standing at the corner in my house, I feel the pressure of this housework. I have to make the breakfast, prepare the lunch, prepare the dinner and wash the dishes. Thanks to my husband that he's at least helping me at washing the dishes and getting the packages from outside. If I'm perfectly honest, I don't think the division of labour has changed that much because he is the person that's gone to do the shopping, only one person being allowed in the supermarket. So he's gone and done that. So that's great. He does all of our cooking, which is amazing. Uh, Again, he's better at it. He makes nicer food than me. So, you know, I do much of the washing up and I do all of our laundry. But certainly there's more cleaning that needs doing because there are four people in our house all of the time. Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Anna Baeza, and I'll be hosting the second season to explore the multiple stories around home in the current COVID crisis. This time, we're recording in less favourable conditions from our homes, so please bear with us if the sound isn't always of studio quality. And in this season, I'll be talking with historians, anthropologists, activists and practitioners to reflect on the many changes brought about this pandemic on our homes. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections to rethink the past through the lens of the present. The relationship between work and home has been profoundly affected by COVID-19. As workspaces bleed into home spaces and put pressure on their traditional separation, the activities of domestic work have also been impacted. In this episode, we consider the histories of domestic work and domestic workers since the late 19th century. That is now, maintaining the home has required skill and constant labor, but who's been responsible for it? We discuss changes in domestic work, especially around the so-called servant problem as it emerged in the early 20th century, through to the wages for housework in the 1970s, domestic work and migration, and new challenges and opportunities we face now under COVID. We're joined by two guests, Rosie Cox and Lucy Delap. Welcome, Rosie and Lucy. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Hello. Lucy Delap is a reader in modern British and gender history at the University of Cambridge, deputy chair of the Cambridge History Faculty and fellow of Murray Edwards College. She has published widely on the history of feminism, gender, labour and religion, including the prize winning The Feminist Avant-Garde, Transatlantic Encounters in the Early 20th Century, and Knowing Their Place, Domestic Service in 20th Century Britain in 2011. Her next book, Feminisms, A Global History, will be published by Penguin in September 2020. And Rosie Cox is Professor of Geography at Birkbeck, University of London. Her research interests focus on the home, particularly housework, DIY, and practices of homemaking, as well as paid domestic labour and care work in private homes and gendered migration. She was a founding member of the Birkbeck Gender and Sexuality Group and has published widely, including the books 
as an equal, appearing in the 21st century from 2018, and The Servant Problem, Paid Domestic Work in a Global Economy, 2006. So thank you both very much for being here. And I'd like to start asking you about housework in which I'm including domestic work, childcare, elder care, homeschooling. All of this is essential work. It's what keeps everything going, but it's often invisible and largely it's still undertaken by women. And as COVID has hit, there's some research that suggests that women have again been taking more of this increased burden. For example, a recent report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies carried out with 3,500 opposite gender families indicated that women, when they're still working, are more likely to reduce their working hours than their counterparts to do this kind of domestic work. And 50% of their work time was being interrupted by shared childcare. So I wanted to start by asking you what you make of these recent analysis and also how this fits with some of the lines of your research. I thought this research was extremely useful because basically it seemed to confirm what a lot of us had suspected, which was that in all sorts of ways, COVID was just reinforcing lots of trends that already existed. And it seems that women's totally taken for granted responsibility for care has been writ large at this time and that when you have a family where there is a mother and a father and both parents have started working from home the additional burden of homeschooling and childcare it's just taken for granted that the woman will try and do that alongside her job. We also see that one of the reasons why women are more likely to cut their working hours is because women are paid less so it's a logical thing for a family to do to say that the woman will cut her working hours and so we then have this real structural reinforcement of women having a lesser place in the workforce that families act on and seemingly in an individual and logical way, but actually it's a social process. And that's just been, like I say, writ large by COVID. And I wonder how that fits with some of the historical trajectories of this phenomenon and whether, Lucy, you might be able to comment on that from your yeah. perspective of the histories that you've looked at of labour and, and work in the home. It is really interesting when we when we look at this historically, because this idea that there might be a shift whereby uh, domestic labour becomes more equally shared is encountered across the 20th century. At numerous moments, people keep finding what they might call companionate marriage, you know, a more kind of reciprocal, more equal kind of a marital relationship, or sometimes it was termed the symmetrical family, the idea that men and women might make equal contributions within the home. That is repeatedly discovered in the interwar years, in the years after World War II, in the 1980s and 1990s. And the fact that it has to keep being discovered reminds us really of the limits of it, that although it's talked about, there's a rhetoric of equality and sharing. When you actually do the counting up of the hours of labor, it doesn't ever measure up to the idea of equality. So I do think there are changes across the 20th century in, in who does work and in what kind of work is undertaken within the home. And there is a shift actually in sort of the last 30, 40 years, whereby certain kinds of labor are more likely to be shared. In particular, some of the parenting work is less about mothering, it's more about parenting. Fathers are more present in the lives of their children. But what isn't shared and what remains a real source of inequality are you know the less favored kind of domestic tasks the the boring stuff of the washing up and the nappy changing and so on and also of course the organizational labor or the worry work as some people have termed it that mothers and female caregivers tend to take on 
around you know making all the arrangements happen so it absolutely doesn't surprise me that this report from the institute of fiscal studies reminds us that women are doing that disproportionate form of labor and when you talk about the sort of the arrangement of tasks i wonder where are you thinking also here about the i suppose the emotional labor the mental load of even delegating those tasks in the home is that what you're getting at or could you expand on um, exactly yeah the idea that someone needs to have the plan in their head, somebody needs to remember the dentist appointments, even if they don't end up going to the dentist, somebody mm. needs to have that sort of controlling role. It would be nice to think that those things could be shared more equally, but in practice, they do tend to be taken on by women. And, and I include in that absolutely the emotional labour of, you know, remembering to buy the present for the birthday party or remembering to send a, a card at, at Christmas or whatever it might be. That kind of work is what it is to create kin and to create family. Danny Miller, the anthropologist, talks about making love in supermarkets. And he gets at that idea that when women go and do the family shop, they're not just putting the meal on the table. They're actually attentively caring and choosing out snacks and treats and preferred foods and avoiding foods that some people in the family don't want to eat. And I love that idea of the making love in supermarkets. It's the capturing of emotional work and uh, organizational work, which is absolutely not shared in current households. Right. So there's this interesting aspect, I guess, of all the effective dimensions that accompany the sort of care work, housework. But I wonder what you make of this in the context of what other people have been saying, that actually there is a silver lining in this recent report that does suggest that men are picking up some of the housework during this COVID pandemic and whether this could potentially shift gender roles, but whether it might do so, bearing in mind all of that emotional effective labour that we're just talking about, if you have some thoughts on that. So there's still a massive disparity in terms of hours worked, but you're right that there have been some indications that men are doing more. I still think that the kinds of tasks that they're likely to pick up are quite gendered, quite stereotyped. The silver lining for me has actually been the prospect of involving older children more in domestic labour. And I think, you know, anecdotally, lots of people have said to me, oh, yes, it's a great chance to get my kids to cook or, or get them cleaning the bathroom or, or sweeping the stairs or, or whatever it might be. So I like the idea that we could throw this a bit wider than simply thinking about the gendered division of labour and think about um, what children might do in the home as well. And of course, to remember that some children are primary caregivers and those young carers already know absolutely what it's like to clean the bathroom and sweep the stairs. I completely agree with what Lucy's saying, but Yes, there has been some evidence of men doing a little bit more domestic work during lockdown, but proportionately nothing like the growth that women have seen in the burden of work that they've taken on. We've also seen that what men have tended to take on is parenting, as Lucy was saying before, rather than the additional cleaning. And some families have taken on masses of more additional cleaning, as well as things like supermarket shopping being much more time consuming, you know, if you have to stand in line and this kind of thing. So the, the research does show that men have tended to do more of the socially valued parenting work rather than the toilet cleaning end of domestic work. And there's certainly been no evidence of that worry work shifting between family members. I think for me, the silver lining is about the fact that we're having these kinds of conversations, that lots of families, including lots of men who perhaps were not aware of quite how much labour went into running a household, have suddenly had it 
forced under their attention. And I think that there has been the time consuming nature of all forms of care work, the importance of this work has been hugely important during the COVID lockdown. And for me, that's part of the silver lining is the visibility of all these different forms of care work and domestic work that we're actually having these conversations about why they matter and who's doing them. We've been talking about the way in which work is distributed in the household, but the nature of households has obviously changed a lot in the last uh, 10 years or so. So I wonder if you've got some thoughts, both from a historical perspective, but also thinking about what households are like now. Lucy, would you like to start? Yeah, thanks, Anna. Well, I mean, historically, across the 20th century, we're seeing quite a lot of demographic change and a reduction in the number of children, which I think changes the nature of the household and the kind of labour within it. And of course, that goes with technological changes that massively change the nature of the household. And just thinking about the contemporary situation, we talked about redistribution within the home and who is in that household is changing. When we look at the profile of UK households, there are more than 8 million people who, who live alone. There are a lot of single person households, as we've seen with the debate about loneliness during the COVID lockdown. There are a lot of young people in their 20s or early 30s who live with their parents. About a quarter of young people of that age group live at home. There are a lot of same sex families, a you know, vastly growing category in the UK. So in terms of sexuality and generations and demographic patterns, this question of who does the labour and how do we redistribute is not as simple as simply saying, oh, well, there's a, a man and a woman as a couple and, and we need to think about the distribution of labour between them. Actually, the household is a much more complex and, and historically changeable category. I think it's very, very easy when we talk about domestic work to kind of revert it to this stereotype of thinking about the heterosexual nuclear family because housework is so much part of the gender wars between men and women and when we have children present it's much more of an issue generally than when we don't but we do need to be sensitive to the changing nature of the household and the way that it creates different demands for domestic work for different forms of care work particularly as the population ages and it is a much more complex and nuanced environment than a lot of the kind of simplistic descriptions of women do this and men do that might perhaps suggest. I'd like us to think a bit about the precedence of these discussions because, you know, feminists have been speaking loudly about this, about the importance of housework to sustain everything else for a while now, especially if we think of the 1970s Wages for Housework campaign as a transnational campaign traveling, you know, from through the US, Italy, Iceland, uh, involving people like Silvia Federici, Maya Rosa della Costa. Uh, so I'd like us to explore that a little bit. Also, I think, Lucy, you're probably addressing this in your upcoming book. They pointed out that the traditional separation between breadwinning and housework was fictitious because housework actually is what helps capitalism reproduce itself. So as part of that campaign, wages for housework, they were calling for housework to be waged, which is not something we've touched on so far. So I wonder, can we explore a bit this movement, what were sort of the ideas that they were fighting for and, and that question of having paid domestic work? The Wages for Housework campaign is a really fascinating episode in feminist history, and it was based on the intellectual inspiration of Marxism, of the recognition that so-called reproductive and productive labour are linked and that you can't have any kind of production without reproduction. And by reproduction, of course, that's not just the biological creation of labour through sex, but also the domestic labour that is required for the upkeep of human life. So 
that was a very rich strand of thinking that enabled Marxist feminists to link up the domestic and paid labor. And it's no surprise that it came about in the 1970s, which was a period of enormous change of austerity, of inflation, of real disruption to the status quo in a sort of geopolitical sense, in the headwinds that the global economy was facing. But also a time, I think, when domestic labor was intensifying, where there were expectations around particularly children and the kind of intensity of parenting, but also around the kind of changing nature of the home and and what kind of technologies were found in it. And that created this real momentum for rethinking domestic labor and its value. And I would say, actually, that I think it's very similar today. I think we're also in a historic moment where things are changing, where there's a lot of intensification of different kinds of labor regimes and, again, opportunities to rethink the status quo. And when you unpick what sort of things they were talking about, I think calling it wages for housework actually slightly short sells the ambition and the kind of conceptual breadth of what they were doing, because the kind of proponents, Selma James, uh, Maria Rosa de la Costa, and so on, they weren't simply saying, oh, let's take uh, domestic labor and make sure it gets paid. In fact, they had a broader critique that was talking about the need to work less, the Mm -hmm. need for labor to be a less alienating, dominant form of human experience. And that really resonates with me today, where we're actually Mm -hmm. seeing around the world you know, people talking about, well, what might a regular four-day working week look like? What would it be like to simply work less? And of course, lots of people on furlough or made unemployed in COVID have been confronting work featuring less in their society, sometimes causing great distress. For other people, it's been a creative moment where they're rethinking what shape their life might make. And that same campaign in the 1970s also produced talk and thinking about what a guaranteed income would look like. So wages for housework doesn't look that dissimilar to people today talking about a universal basic income. And in a way, they narrowed and strategically chose that specific question of the need to pay people for domestic labor, women primarily. But actually, their goals were broader. They were really trying to shake up the whole economic system and the way in which it intersected with systems of the sexual division of labor. So that is super exciting. It's also worth saying, perhaps, that they were criticized strongly at the time and subsequently for proposing a policy solution that seemed to root women more in the home, that seemed to say, yes, you do a lot of housework. We're not going to change that. We're just going to revalue it. We're just going to give you some resources to say, thanks, you've done this labor. And for a whole generation of feminists, people like Shulamit Firestone, they were saying, no, we don't want women to be rooted in the home. We want women to have choice in their lives for any kind of options. And for lots of women, that doesn't involve domestic labor or care work. And so there was a real tension there between this fear that wages for housework was really just rewarding women for something that was actually a very confining role. And, you know, the Marxist interpretation, which is this is labor and it should be paid for. It should be given its true worth. So it was never like a straightforward campaign. But I think it did speak to the interests of a lot of working class women who felt that feminism as it had previously been constructed was all about professional women, educated women, women who wanted to free their sexuality and experiment with you know, new forms of living. They felt that the housewife role had been kind of devalued. So they wanted a form of feminism that spoke to them that said, yes, we respect your role as a housewife. We don't denigrate being a housewife. Instead, we want to give you social and, and economic approbation for the work you've done. 
On that point, Lucy, about the criticism to wages for housework as rooting women in the home, doesn't that raise the question of then who does the work? I mean, ultimately, this is labor that someone needs to do. So how could that be reorganized and redistributed differently? I think a lot of feminist projects have confronted that difficult question of, you know, so who does this then? And quite a lot of projects that have called for a, a revaluation or a rethinking of who does that work have ended up saying, really, this work needs to be socialized. This mm. work needs to be done as a public service. It needs to be devolved out of the home and devolved onto other kinds of workers. And so there's been all sorts of schemes, and we might talk about some of this later, to take domestic workers and support their work better, to nationalize domestic work, if you like. But it is tricky because I think, personally, it has to be done with also a recognition of the need that some work that stays in the household might be redistributed. So I think there's a kind of twin track here around who we imagine and the work being done by and, and how it might be done. That leads to something I wanted to ask you about as well, which is we're moving on to thinking about domestic workers when that is privatized or it's not performed within the context of the family when families can afford to then bring external domestic workers to do that work that would have previously occurred within the household and both of you have done work on this area you Lucy more in the early to the mid 20th century and Rosie you've looked at a later period from the 80s to the present so building on what Lucy was just saying could you expand on this question of domestic work so there was a huge growth in domestic workers mostly female vastly disproportionately female in 19th century Britain, and that paralleled other countries around the world, such as the US, Australia. Domestic work became one of the largest sectors uh, alongside agriculture for women's work. And that peaks in terms of its size within the economy, the very late 19th century, the 1890s. And in terms of absolute numbers working in domestic work, it's continuing to rise until around the 1910s. It then tails off to some extent across the 20th century as you have different options emerge for women workers. But my historical research suggests that while it tails off in the formal sector, you have a growth in the informal sector that mm. to some extent takes its place. So instead of having a formally employed live-in domestic servant, if you're a middle class or upper middle class household, you might instead have a cleaner, a char, a mother's help. You know, there's a whole variety of different words that are used there. And maybe that kind of variety of terminology is a sign of how slippery that role becomes, that it becomes hard to see it in the archive, it becomes hard to capture it in kind of formal records. And people who can afford it continue to have this fantasy or, or this reality that they can get other people to do that work. And it's very much dependent on the nature of the economy. And when you see economic downturns, you see more women taking on those roles because they don't have any other economic options. And I think the same is likely to be true after the economic fallout of COVID hits us. And the same was true in the 1980s with the sharp downturns that you saw then and also similarly after the 2008 financial crisis. So there's always been a place in the economy, whether it's formal or informal, for domestic workers. And I think for a lot of 20th century married couples, maybe they did have ideas about symmetrical family, about shared domestic labor. But when push comes to shove, there's a lot of conflict over how we distribute domestic labor. And some wealthy families have been able to avoid conflict by devolving so that households are able to not have to face up to the tricky question of who cleans the loo by paying for a, a cleaner or an au pair or a char to take on that work. 
picking up the story from where Lucy's research leaves off, you know, in the mid to late 20th century. What we saw, as Lucy said, from the financial downturn of the 1980s was an increase in the number of domestic workers that we were tracing in the UK and the same trend was found in the US. In other parts of Europe, it tends to be a rise in the number of care workers, say in Italy, for care workers for elderly people working in their homes. But we see this kind of slow growth from the late 1980s, 1990s and continuing today. And across the world, what we've seen historically is that the number of domestic workers correlates with economic recession. So when people don't have access to other forms of work, when women don't have access to other forms of work, they'll move into domestic work. But also that the number of domestic workers correlates with inequality in society. So as the incomes of the richest move further away from the incomes of the poorest and the expected earnings of people at the bottom of the wages pyramid, then we see a growth in the number of domestic workers. And as you're probably very well aware, the 21st century has seen extreme polarisation of wealth in a lot of countries, the UK amongst them. And with that, we've seen a growth in very many different forms of domestic work. As Lucy says, in most families, that would probably take the form of a cleaner who comes in for a few hours a week and has that incredibly important role in the family of stopping the arguments, possibly stopping a divorce from happening down the line. So it's very valuable work indeed for a lot of households. We also have seen an increase in people who are involved in providing childcare until around 2007-8. That would have been nannies as well as au pairs. Since a change in regulation in 2008, that's almost entirely au pairs with nannies only being employed by very wealthy families. A nanny could cost you 50,000 a year if you're employing them properly under all the legal rules. Nannies are meant to be inspected by Ofsted as well as paid on the books, their tax, national insurance and things, whereas no pair is only given pocket money of maybe £80 per week. So they kind of fall into different positions. We've also seen a massive growth in care workers looking after elderly people as the population ages and the state hasn't backfilled, hasn't really expanded enough to do that. And then at the kind of top end of the spectrum, we also see an increase in not only things like butlers, those domestic workers who are there for status, but there are also the chauffeurs, the pilots of private jets and helicopters, the private hairdressers and beauticians and things like that. So at the sort of pinnacle of the ultra-rich, people have these whole teams of quite specialist workers who keep their family rolling, looking as they're meant to, their children, not only privately educated, but tutored by teams of specialists, their private chefs or that kind of thing. And then at the other end of the hierarchy, we have the cleaners working just a few days a week. And all those parts of domestic labour have grown with extreme inequality in the 21st century. 
the last description that you were giving, Rosie, was making me think of that recent film, uh, that South Korean film, Parasites, which yeah. <laughs> um, you probably both saw. And just uh, you were talking about, about this, the question of the polarisation of society and how increasing levels of inequality have the impact of increasing these kinds of care work and, and housework. And obviously, we know that a lot of it happens as an informal economy, as, as you've said, and how much of that, the precarity and lack of security will have been exacerbated by covid and by the conditions of, of the pandemic. So I wondered if maybe, Rosie, you could start, if you could comment on this, and especially in terms of going forward, how, how you think in the aftermath of COVID, what we might be seeing. And, and Lucy, of course, if, if you'd like to comment on that as well. OK, well, to start with, during COVID, it's actually been very interesting that the situation of domestic workers has, again, been made visible in a way that it isn't normally. And there have been reports from a number of different countries about specifically what has been happening to domestic workers. So when we saw the beginning of the lockdown in India, for example, and lots and lots of rural migrants were trying to return to their home villages, lots of those people were domestic workers who were like suddenly expelled from the urban households that they were working in. We've seen the plight of domestic workers in Brazil has been really important and quite relatively well reported for the extent to which domestic workers are often ignored. The first person in Rio to die from COVID was a domestic worker and she contracted the disease because her wealthy employer had been on a skiing holiday in Italy and brought the disease back. And in fact, that's what's happened across Brazil is that it was largely relatively wealthy people who started mm. with COVID and then passed it on to their domestic workers who then were living in overcrowded conditions in poorer neighbourhoods and it spread into poorer neighbourhoods. And domestic workers have found themselves vulnerable to COVID in two ways, either They've been told not to work, please go away, and therefore they haven't um, necessarily had any income. And because very few domestic workers are formally employed, they haven't been able to be furloughed. So that's one way in which they've been vulnerable, is they've just been made unemployed. And sometimes that's been domestic workers who are living in, who've just been kicked out. So I know of au pairs who just got kicked out of the families they were living in. Go away get out of the house now, regardless of the fact that the countries that they came from were not allowing people to return. So those people were made extremely vulnerable, put at very high risk because they were not seen as being members of the family and were seen as not appropriate to be there during the disease. Other domestic workers have been put at risk by not being allowed to return home and being asked to keep working and to keep moving between their own household and the people that they work for and not having control over their exposure to the disease that way. So COVID has been really important to the vulnerability of domestic workers. So that's, you know, they've been in a very unusual situation because they of their place inside and outside the household. During COVID, the household has become the unit of disease control. That is what lockdown has created. And domestic workers have been one of the few groups that has this very strange status as both inside and outside the mm. households that they work for. Post-COVID, what is likely to happen? We know that the recession is going to hit people who were in personal service um, and hospitality work. Women have been hit particularly hard by increasing unemployment, whereas people with office jobs that they've been able to do from home or middle class people have largely kept their work. So that polarisation of incomes has also increased during COVID. And these are all the conditions that we would expect to underpin a further increase in the extent of paid domestic work. 
Rosie's absolutely right to say that, you know, this is an informal sector and these workers have been incredibly vulnerable to COVID. But maybe it's worth on a more optimistic note saying, I do think there has been a revaluation of domestic labour, of cleaning, of the care of children and so on during this lockdown. It's been extraordinary to see the way in which cleaning services, which were always the Cinderella of public sector employers like hospitals and schools and so on, suddenly realising actually these could be our most important workers. You know, if anyone is going to be brought back, it's going to be the cleaners. And I don't know whether that will have a knock-on effect around the value of activities like cleaning within the home. But I'd like to think that it's possible for us to see cleaning and the reproduction of human life in its full um, spectrum of activities as changing, as being recognised to be super, super important and valuable after the lockdown. You're listening to That Feels Like Home. I'm Annabai Than. In this episode, I'm talking to Lucy Delap and Rosie Cox about domestic work during COVID and the histories of housework. Stay tuned to hear us talk about domestic workers campaigning, rights and the intersections with feminism. Lucy, in your work, you talk about agency to refer to the ongoing debate amongst historians as to the extent to which domestic workers might be historical subjects with the capacity to act, which is an important thing to think about in relation to campaigning and organizing for workers' rights then as well as now. Could you explain more how you've approached this question? You're absolutely right. You know, is the clap for the key workers outside of one's house just an empty round of applause or can it be translated into better conditions, better pay, more social recognition of the value of this labour? So you talked about agency and, and it's been a hugely important part of history from below, subaltern histories, social histories, the kind of histories that are about the people whose labour is informal, is precarious, is is not valued. It's been important in those histories to say, actually, people do act. These workers, these caregivers, they do have the power to change their lives, to act in significant ways. So agency is a way of capturing that. Now, I've written about this recently to say, yes, it's great to show agency, but that we shouldn't be satisfied with that as a full account. And what we need to do is say, well, what kinds of agency are expressed? Because it's, I think, banally true that all human actors, historical actors, have the power to act in in one way or another. There is a great literature on this in relation to domestic service. And I'm, I'm thinking here of the anthropologist James C. Scott, who wrote a book called Weapons of the Week, a very, very significant book that has launched a thousand ships of, of other studies. And he was interested in, you know, what people who don't have formal power can do to construct their worlds and change their situations. And in specific terms, in the historical literature on domestic workers, you know, this is all about the noises off, if you like, the slamming doors, the the go slows, the spitting in the soup, the ways in which domestic workers would sometimes very clearly make their voices heard or make their views heard. I would say, though, that there's also a, a lot of evidence in the historical literature that there were limits on that. You can spit in the soup all you like, but is it going to get you a pay rise? You can threaten to resign all you like. And, you know, at some point, you're actually just going to lose your job. So agency is this contested category. And when we look at the efforts to organize domestic workers, they have been stymied by the fragmentation of that sector, the fact that a lot of domestic workers are very isolated. Sometimes they're of migrant origins, and they are not very well connected necessarily into their host society. They may not have 
the good language. They may not have networks of support. The union movement, which has been hugely important in supporting low paid workers to come together, hasn't got a very good record historically on domestic workers. But I would say that it's very exciting that we're seeing some very powerful shifts towards organizing precarious workers, whether that's the McDonald's workers, whether it's hospital cleaners, whether it's people working in fruit picking. The union movement has recognized, I think, that it can't afford to stick with the formerly employed traditional sort of working class roles in in manufacturing industries, say, and that it needs to go into those service sector roles and into the informal economy and do something about those workers to compel change. So I'm, I'm broadly optimistic that there are ways forward, even though when I look back, it looks as though domestic workers did really struggle to be agents in terms of trade union approaches to organizing. So a lot of their agency and the change that they made happen was at these very micro levels of, you know, resisting employers on a kind of everyday basis. So Lucy, you've mentioned the fractured nature of domestic work. So I wonder, Rosie, if you could expand on that a bit, given that you've done research in those areas. Yeah, sure. I'll definitely do that. And also um, tell another good news story about some of the progress that domestic workers have made. So one of the things that Lucy's made reference to is that domestic work is fragmented, that domestic workers might have an awful lot in common. But one of the things they rarely have in common is their workplace or their employer. So unlike other workers who've been unionised, you can't get a whole group of people together who work for the same employer and ask for collective bargaining. Mm. And that's kind of frustrated traditional attempts. But domestic workers quite often have organised maybe alongside unions or outside unions, and they have made some gains. And quite often the issues that they will be tackling, as well as being about their working conditions, their pay, will be really intimately tied up with their migrant status. Because in the global north, there are huge numbers of migrant domestic workers. It's not necessarily the case in the global south. So quite often we have people who are migrants, but they're from rural to urban areas within the same country. But in Europe and North America and in Australia, we have the complication that lots of domestic workers have a visa status or a migration status that gives them less rights than other workers or that they might be undocumented, so they have additional worries around that. So quite often campaigns can integrate both the desire to have a stronger position uh, for the visa, like a visa that lasts longer, that kind of thing, as well as being about working conditions. But quite often that migrant status is double-sided. It means it's very difficult for people to organise because they don't want to raise their heads above the parapet. But on the other hand, we quite often have organisations. So Filipina domestic workers have been really important um, in a number of countries around the world in organising together as a national group and pushing for domestic workers' rights that way. And they might come together in cultural associations and then carry on to push their cause as domestic workers. So we see these alternative ways of organising. But the good news story, which I think is really worth thinking about, is that at an international scale, there's been a huge leap forward in terms of the recognition of domestic work, which was done by the International Labour Organization and the passing of something called Convention 189. And this made the demand on all members of the International Labour Organization, which is most countries in the world, to introduce the same rights for domestic workers as for other workers, which when you think about it, 
it should be a no-brainer. Like, why shouldn't domestic workers have exactly the same employment rights as exist in the law of your country? But there wasn't a single country in the world where they did. And since Convention 189 was passed in 2011, a small number of countries have been slowly signing up to it. Still a tiny minority compared to the total number that could. And the UK is not one of them. The UK will not agree to give domestic workers the same rights as other workers. But there have been a couple of countries that have signed up which are really important. So again, Brazil. Brazil has been very important in these debates because it employs the single largest number of domestic workers of any country in the world. And it did sign up to Convention 189 and introduced workers' rights for domestic workers. And that's actually had a huge effect on the sector there and has changed the organisation of domestic work from being almost exclusively live-in to much more often a live-out job so that domestic workers can go home to their own families at the end of the day and are generally in a much better position because of that. So there are some histories of really successful organising, like even at that great international scale. So we shouldn't think of domestic workers as being entirely beyond, you know, having quite large scale agency sometimes. Thanks very much, Rosie. I didn't actually know about that convention So in terms of domestic workers' rights, could you elaborate on that a bit more? What sort of rights are we talking about and how does this compare to the rights of other workers? Yeah, sure. So say, for example, if we take the example of the UK, the rights that people have because they're workers would be things like there's a maximum number of hours that you can work per week. It's 48 hours per week in this country unless you sign that you're not prepared to do that. You have a right to having a certain amount of leave. You have a right to health and safety protections. So those are the kinds of rights that you have because you're a worker. Domestic workers don't have those rights in law. So say, for example, in the UK, we actually still have the category of domestic service, of a domestic servant. And it is written in law that that a person who has that role is not protected by the European Working Time Directive. There is no limit on the number of hours that somebody who is a domestic worker can be asked to work in Britain. They have no right necessarily to having um, holiday. And that's common across the world, that whatever rights exist in law for workers, there will be an exemption that says this does not cover domestic workers. It's particularly affect living domestic workers rather than somebody like a professional nanny who comes and goes. So before Convention 189, there wasn't a single country in the world where domestic workers had equal rights to all other workers. Generally, domestic workers don't have access to minimum wage in the same way as other workers. So as I've been saying, in lots of regimes, the law says protections for workers don't affect somebody who lives in. So in this country, for example, we have minimum wage, but we have an exemption to national minimum wage legislation for people who are called family workers who are living domestic workers. So living in also means that there are no health and safety protections. The domestic home isn't recognised as a workplace for ordinary health and safety protections. So legally living in is bad. But it's also where the emotional mess happens. That means that domestic workers can be super exploited. So whilst a domestic worker who's working, say, 40 hours a week for their employer, they might have to go home and do second shift at home. They're unlikely to be working as hard as the way that the live-in domestic workers who are working in the very worst conditions are. So we see cases of domestic workers who are working seven days a week with maybe four hours sleep a night, 
month after month after month. We see people not being paid, having their passports withheld, being victims of physical, sexual and psychological abuse. And because they never leave the house, because they live in, they can't report it and they can't seek help. So the ability to treat a domestic worker really appallingly is underpinned by the fact that they live in. So living in is problematic in all sorts of ways. And just following up on that historically, Rosie's absolutely right. Living in does not have a good profile when we think about Britain and its 20th century servants, where, you know, it was sort of recommended good practice to have a working day that could start as early as 6 a.m. and it could go on as late as 11 p.m. And within that, you might have a significant number of hours off in the afternoon, but workers constantly reported that during that so-called time off in the afternoon, let's say it might be two till six or something like that, that they were asked to, oh, could you know, you're, you're just sitting around. Would you mind doing this darning or while you're going out for a walk? Could you just pop to the shop and get this stuff? So they felt that their time was never their own. They were often expected to still answer the door during their afternoon off. And that sometimes meant, you know, making sure that they were fully wearing uniform to answer the door, the kind of black and white cap and apron that we associate with domestic service. So servants really resented the way that they felt as though they couldn't have hobbies, that they couldn't have friendships, that their attempts to court and and set up their own families were often very heavily policed or just made impossible. And so that nexus of demands created by living in made domestic service a really unpopular profession, even though servants found that they could often make a decent wage and save money because they didn't have many other expenses. Most young women Uh, employed as servants in the early 20th century still talked about how much they hated their jobs. Lucy, I think just on what you're saying now, there's something I'd like to bring up, which might be a small sort of sticking point in the early history of feminism in the turn of the century, early 20th century, and is the ways in which whilst domestic workers, as you were saying, would have been doing all this work for endless hours at home. This might have been making some women suffrage activists to devote their time to campaign for women's rights. So I I wanted to ask you both about this relationship between feminism and domestic work, because this is something that we might still be seeing today as uh, women might be employing cleaners or domestic workers. And how do you see this historically, but also in more recent times? Well, maybe I'll I'll start on the on the historical front there. And yeah, there are very strong links between, you know, the ability to employ a servant and one's ability to devote time to campaigning of, of all sorts of different kinds, not just suffrage, but also the enormous amounts of philanthropic work that uh, middle and, and upper middle class women did in, in the early 20th century. I was really fascinated by this when I was reading the suffrage press of that period and found in the correspondence columns lots and lots of letters from domestic workers, domestic servants, and from their employers, from mistresses, discussing the nature of the work that was being asked uh, of servants and their pay and so on. So feminism certainly provided a site at which those things could be discussed, sometimes with good grace, sometimes with quite a lot of hostility and grumbling. And it is a kind of tension, I think, within the early 20th century women's movement that it certainly was a space where women's labour was recognised, where it was sometimes revalued, where servants and their problems were sometimes taken very seriously. So the Domestic Workers Union, for example, which was founded in 1909 and which Laura Schwartz has just written a terrific book about, that is a product 
as much of the labor movement as the suffrage movement. It's very much a coming together of those two projects. And lots of the chief figures in that union were also involved in the Women's Social and Political Union, the uh, militant suffrage organization and other suffrage bodies. So, you know, we shouldn't just kind of take a a simple analysis here that says, oh, it was Mm. all based on the labor of servants that allowed middle class women to go and have their suffrage fun, if you like. I think there's a bigger story about how there were possibilities of dialogue across class boundaries and where working class women often felt that women's suffrage was a cause that mattered a great deal to them. We certainly shouldn't think that suffrage was only a middle class movement. There was a very strong, particularly northern English industrial town, working class suffrage movement. However, there's also a lot of evidence in those letters and interactions that we see in the feminist press, which suggests that middle class women were not that keen to hear what it was like to work as a domestic worker, where they would look at a letter from a domestic worker describing her working day and describing how you know, she doesn't get any time off, how the wages work out to be very little and saying, you know, sure, surely this can't be true. You must be mistaken. Just simply refusing to believe that, that, that testimony and listing out their own sense of, well, you know, the domestic worker costs me one shilling sixpence for their food and, you know, this amount for their uniform and, you know, I get this amount of work out of them. So they were sometimes pretty coldly clinical about their economic interests in being able to use that labor, to draw on that labor. So there's a there's certainly a sense in which the class conflicts did pervade the women's movement. And I don't think those things were resolved, because I think if you look across the 20th century, you continue to see wealthier women, uh, educated women, sometimes treating it as their kind of birthright to be able to employ poorer mm-hmm. women to do their domestic labor. And I would say that sometimes that precluded having difficult conversations about the extent to which men should be expected to do that mm-hmm. labor. So yeah. it's a it's like a long running stone in the shoe of the women's movement and of feminist history. And possibly still to this day, Rosie, do you want yeah. to add something to that? Yeah, I think so. I was also thinking of my favourite story from history is in Alison Light's absolutely mm. wonderful book about Mrs. Wolfe and the servants about Virginia Wolfe <laughs> and the way that she used to make her housekeeper take the minutes for their Labour Party meetings. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> so the housekeeper was appropriate in the room, but not as a member of their little Labour group, only as the servant. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting question. And it was silent in this country in the women's movement until relatively recently and is just starting to be um, voiced again now. And I think Lucy's description of a stone in a shoe is precisely correct. In other countries, it's a much more active debate. And again, in Latin America, there's a very active discussion of exactly how middle-class feminists who rely on domestic workers, and this includes academics who are publishing all the research on paid domestic work, what their relationship is to the domestic workers that they employ. And some of that's led to progressive employer groupings who introduce a good contract, so minimum working hours and a good rate of pay for a particular area that they're living in. So that in the middle class women have organised as employers to try and raise standards rather than directly supporting domestic workers agency of their own. But I think Lucy also raises this point that domestic workers do not only free up women to do these things, they free up men as well. Mm. And Whenever we see politicians being caught out 
because they've employed somebody who's undocumented, it's always seen as being the woman who has employed that undocumented worker. But, you know, men live in houses, men make dirt in toilets, their beds do not miraculously make themselves as they jump out of them, their laundry does not do itself, their food does not cook itself. And, you know, somebody is doing that labour that is freeing up men, and we have to keep making that obvious, but it isn't just women's labour that's being replaced. Yes, absolutely. I think this goes back to some of the things we were discussing at the beginning and that distribution of labour, which which leads me to the subject of care. So we, we've been seeing, you know, increasingly that people are working longer hours, two incomes are needed to support a family. There's a diminished welfare state and some academic scholars have been speaking about for a while now about this crisis of care. And I guess during the pandemic, much of this has been made more visible, as we were saying earlier. So how do you see this crisis of care evolving into the future? I think this comes back to a point that Lucy raised right at the start in talking about wages for housework, that this crisis of care shows just how intimately intertwined what happens at home is with what happens in paid work. And I think the question of the crisis of care isn't just about care, or maybe isn't even primarily about care, it's about the conditions of paid work. And it's only when we ask questions of how paid work is organised, how much of it we ought to be doing, and under what conditions, that we can then say there is the capacity to care. So I think if we can ask those questions about why do we work five days a week, why is the number of hours on average that we work growing for the first time in history? You know, it's been declining for a century or so. Why is it going up? Why do we need so many more hours of paid work to ensure a reasonable standard of living? Those are the questions we need to ask in order to solve the crisis of care, as well as attending to the value of care and celebrating it beyond just standing on the doorstep clapping. I uh, think this is really interesting, this question of care. And I was thinking about this when we were subjected recently to the depiction of uh, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who has just become a father for not the first time. Um, <laughs> he was trying to demonstrate, you know, how <laughs> how great he is, I guess. Uh, and he, he showed us doing a load of press-ups on the floor of his office. And it's extraordinary to me that, you know, that is quite a macho act. And yet, you know, he must also be aware that there is a form of care giving, a care work that he could have depicted. You know, he could have talked about what it's like to have a new baby at home, how that might impact on his work and the work that he might be doing around his growing family. And instead, we get a sort of almost Putin-esque presentation of of, of him (laughs) doing these office press-ups. It reminds us of how, yes, we're in a situation where care and domestic labour has been put in the profile, has been revalued, but there are real limits to how far our public conversation takes count of that. So I guess going forward, I would like to see certainly a kind of entrenchment of this question about what do we value and to show how unpaid care work and domestic labour is valuable. I'd like to see a reversal of the tendency for the state to get out of providing that care, the Mm. closure of nursery schools in the UK, for example. And, you know, it would be great to see a renewed public commitment to that care I'd like to see a redistribution within the home around who does the work. And I'd like to see us really listening to care workers, to, you know, amplifying their voices, to hearing about their testimony, about their labour and their, their experiences. And cautiously optimistic that we are actually listening to 
cleaners and people involved in homeschooling and people who are facing the enlarged burden of domestic care at the moment, I think we are hearing their voices. And that, for me, has got to help us create sort of momentum for change. I think Lucy is completely right that we have seen a moment when we are asking questions about how all these different forms of care and carers are being valued. And that public conversation is just extremely welcome. And I do think that there is some optimism. We know from history that progress in this area is slow and not necessarily always forward. But I do think that this moment has really just made so visible how important caring is and all the myriad forms that it takes. So I hope that we will build on that and, you know, not forget this um, as we hope to, you know, as some kind of bad memory of the terrible pandemic that we don't look back on. Well, thanks very much, Lucy and Rosie, for joining us in this discussion. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Anna, for hosting us. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks very much to our guests for this episode, Lucy Delap from the University of Cambridge and Rosie Cox from Birkbeck University of London, for joining us in this conversation around domestic work and domestic workers. In this episode, you also heard the voices of S. Rabisi and Kate Murray, who lent their impressions of housework during lockdown, and we're very grateful for your contributions. I'm Anna Baeza, and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. For more information about this episode, show notes and reading lists, please visit our website moda.mdx.ac.uk. We'll be back again with more episodes touching on more aspects of home life and the everyday under COVID. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.